Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined for the first time in what feels like months by Jeremy Goldcorn. Man, it's been a long time since we've been in the studio together, man. It has. I think the last show we did together was like in late March. It was with Timothy Garton Ash. That's right, and it's now May 21. I think that we ought to compose an extemporaneous uh, occasional poem to express the depth of our... Of, of our emotion at our podcasting reunion. Oh, perhaps not. <laughs> okay. Well, I've got my Malby handy. So anyway, I, I wanted to rectify something first. Um, that I've been terribly remiss about many months ago as we approached 1,000 likes on our Facebook page. Whoopty fuck! Uh, I had um, actually promised the next signed book that came into our possession uh, to the thousandth, thousandth like. That went to Miss Kaisa Cantola. No, it had nothing to do with her name being. Similar to mine, she's uh, apparently Finnish expat living here in Beijing, and、uh, I just wanted to give her a shout out and let her know that we have sent out a signed copy of Partners and Rivals: The Uneasy Future of China's Relationship with the United States by Wendy Dobson, who was a guest on our show some months back. So, Kaisa,、uh, that should be in your hands by the time you hear this. And thanks very much for your support for the show. So, last month, as you may have seen,、um, it was the official 20th anniversary of China's first connection to the World Wide Web. The first web server was actually connected in May 1994, 20 years ago. And in the ensuing two decades, and especially in the last 15 years, we've seen China just profoundly transformed by the internet. Our very first show back in April of 2010 was about Google's withdrawal from China. And of course, Jeremy, you and I have talked. I don't know how many times, innumerable times, about all sorts of internet-related topics.、Um, that's mostly been, of course, on the con- in the context of、uh, you know the internet as an emerging public sphere, about political engagement, about you know the rise of social media, about the nature of internet censorship of social media, and so these are, of course, very very important topics toward an understanding of how the internet has transformed China. But、uh, sometimes, in the focus that we give to these facets of the internet in China, we don't pay maybe sufficient attention to the m- many other ways in which the you know the internet's really profoundly changed things here: the economic impact,、um, the industries that it has completely upended or made more efficient, and of course, its its role as the crucible of、uh, contemporary culture in China, the crazy and weird and wonderful mine of memes and the elevation of all these you know weirdo new internet personalities and the Whole cult of the、uh, startup entrepreneur, lots, lots, lots more. So, with us to discuss the short and so far utterly fascinating history of the internet in China is none other than Duncan Clark, chairman and founder of BDA, and easily among the canniest observers of all things telecom and internet in China. Duncan has known the Chinese internet since it was in diapers and、uh, knows where all the bodies are buried. So the stars aligned, and Duncan, who spends a lot of his time、uh, between Beijing and Stanford. Uh, is actually here in Beijing with us and here in the studio. So hey, great to finally have you on the show after many many missed fires. It's great to be here. And、um, Gotti just walked in. So yes, just, uh, hey, and so Gotti just in time.、Um, over to you. Just responding to the bat signal. Okay, yeah, we <laughs> Baidu we, we Alibaba ten cent signal. <laughs> But, oh, very good. In my Batmobile, Sanlunjo. Oh, that's excellent, excellent.、Um, the Batmobile. Anyway,、uh, Gotti, of course, is is、uh, correspondent for the Economist here in China, and、uh, as you may remember,、uh, wrote. Uh, a an excellent package for the Economist on、um, that we 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 fondly refer to as Gotti's enormous package、uh, for、um, the Economist on, on the internet in China <laughs> called、uh, that was sort of under the auspices of the the giant cage or something. Gotti's bat. Yeah, Gotti's bat. Something like that.、Yeah. Anyway, and and then the third guest you just heard from is of course none other than Bill Bishop,、uh, the, the cynic behind cynicism. 
Uh, he is, of course, a longtime regular guest on the show. He was with us from our very uh, our maiden voyage way back then in, in April 2010. Uh, welcome back to the show, Bill. Thanks for having me, Kaiser and Jeremy. Oh, great. So, Jeremy, you had a good idea of how we should kick off today, right? I just thought it would be fun to uh, recount our first experiences on the Internet in China. Mine was 1996. Uh, I suddenly became aware, I think it may have been a newspaper ad, that you could get a, a connection to the Internet uh, as an ordinary person, even a foreigner. And at that time in Beijing, you had to go down to the Telegraph Building, as it was known on Chang'anjie. Yeah, and you had to uh, wait in line, long line, old school Chinese line, um, and fill in some forms and bring your passport and photo- photocopies of your passport. Um, and uh, you got an internet connection. I think it took a few days if you had a phone already to uh, to arrange. And you were supposed to afterwards go to the local PSB, the local police station, and register as an internet user. And at that time, I think, Duncan, you'd know better, maybe there were a few, a few hundred thousand internet users in China in 1996. Not even that many. And it was a dial-up. Not even that many. Not even that many. It was dial-up, old, you know, very slow old modem. And it was uh, an incredible feeling to get online in China. I mean, it was pretty new for the whole world. But suddenly to have this feeling, oh, my gosh, I'm connected to everywhere. That was my experience. Duncan, what about you? You you have been here since, what, 94? 94. 94. So, so I was really the era of shortwave radio and waiting for the South China Morning Post to come in the afternoon <laughs> off the Dragonair with bits cut out. And you know, it was basically very information deprived. Your biggest cost then was um, your international phone bill and fax because to get information to and from clients, you, you were using uh, IDD. So, yeah, I remember uh, it was summer of 95, I think, when I first logged on. Actually, it was my colleague who wanted to play... Uh, Go, the Chinese chess uh, with friends in Japan. <laughs> so gaming was the very first reason that we had it in the office. And it was public3.bta.net.cn. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. oh, those too. I still have that yeah. on my card somewhere. But um, yeah. uh, basically, the Beijing Telecom Administration it first launched here in May, as you said, of 95. So the first connection to China was in, in 94. Right. But that was an academic connection from the Institute of High Energy Physics t- from Slack at Stanford. Um, and there's an interesting backstory to how actually the Department of Energy in the U.S. had uh, been encouraging this connection to happen. The DOD was a bit reluctant, uh, but in the end, no, um, more reluctant, the, uh, there was an agreement that it was okay to connect China to the Internet as long as an email was sent telling everybody that China is coming on. So that, that puts it in perspective. You could actually send an email to everybody in the Internet say, so it was an academic thing, and then in 95 it started, it was 9.6. And there were no spammers. Right. Yeah. That was the second so email So people spent, read the sent. email. Yeah, <laughs> the NSA was probably on the list. Uh, well, there was some debate, apparently, but uh, we can look back on that. But, uh, but yeah, so basically it kicked off summer of 95 in Beijing, and then in Shanghai and Guangzhou. But it was very much China Telecom. It was the, the Directorate General of Telecommunications, wasn't even China Telecom. And it was quite surprising that it even was opened up, as you said, um, and it, it, you know, got off into a few hundred thousand. And uh, I think the first shutdown, we can talk about that, was in, uh, in 96 oh, over really? the Senkaku or Jiaoyu Islands, as uh, fondly known here. So basically, uh, Ying Highway, we'll talk about this company, was one of the first sort of bulletin boards that had sort of connected to the Internet. I think we should talk about the bulletin board experience that already existed in Chinese universities, right? So there's a very strong BBS culture here. Sure, as, as with all, all the universities in America. So yeah. Tell us um, a little bit about the intranets at the universities because it, this really is where it came out of. And yeah, maybe explain some of the staying power of BBSs in, in Chinese 
internet culture today. Yeah, I mean, I think firstly there was domestic intranet, so um, you, there were two rates you could for free effectively beyond these Tsinghua uh, or Fudan, your the local BBS. And then when the internet came along, there was the ability to access international sites, but you had to pay, um, and that was the first way to sort of try to have a China-wide web versus a worldwide web, if you will. Um, but the BBS culture was very thriving, and Ying Haiwei, the first internet content site, really came out of the. Tell BBS us about the, the founder of Ying Haiwei, but but at, before you, let's let's get around the room here. Let's let's make sure, Bill. What's no, your, your briefly, first online actually, experience? My, my first experience as I was living in uh, the states at the time was coming here on a business trip and going to a big conference and actually chatting with the people from Ying Haiwei and sort of copy serve meets AOL for China. Um, very interesting uh, early, but as we all know, early doesn't necessarily mean you make the most money. And so I think they eventually blew up. Um, and then the other one was actually living in California was um, got to be friends with the one of the founders of Sina back in the day when it was a Taiwanese company based in Sunnyvale. Um, and that was, uh, went, we did a small business deal with them. We went to their offices uh, it's near a sort of a strip mall down in Sunnyvale area. It's all strip and, uh, malls in Sunnyvale. This is a particularly interesting one, but the um, uh, everyone was in in Toysia and sand in uh, sort of uh, slippers in the in the office. I was like, oh, this feels like a Taiwanese dorm. This is great. <laughs> and who knew what it became? I was going to say I was on the other side of that before Cena merged with uh, you know there was a merger of a Taiwanese and a Stone Research right. and Stone was an original sort of spin-off yeah. of Sudan. And uh, Wang Zhidong really right. was one of the first founders, really, of the, the China side of that. And so and his first trip to the U.S. in 95, I was helping set up. So probably we were both on opposite sides of that early um, merger of the, those companies. I got on the Internet first in 1996. I had just come back. Um, this is the beginning of the present 18-year stint in, in China. And uh, I was helping my dad out with business. He had a computer in the office. He was uh, delighted to have set up an account. Uh, I remember my, my, my email ba- address back then was beijingrocker at yahoo.com. What a f- <laughs> I remember <laughs> so, that. You remember that email address. I'm sorry. I'm Very sorry. To, yeah, it was. It was incredibly cheap. Well, rocker was, or Yahoo? Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Kaiser. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, Ka- we Kaiser, were all pretty cheesy. cheesy on yeah, we were all pretty then. cheesy. But no yeah. one knew you were a dog. Uh, you know, I had, I had had a CompuServe uh, account back in the States, of course. And, uh, you know, I, I, who, who would have guessed that three years later I would actually be working in an in Internet company and then uh, have never really left it. Let's go back to uh, Duncan. Tell us a little bit about the founder of Ying Hai Wei. Um, she was one of the, the more uh, colorful early personalities of the Internet in China. Yeah, you have to let me check my notes because it's so, such a long time ago. Right, right, I can't right. really remember much about her, except that, you know, there were some early pioneers um, like her also in the e-commerce, we'll talk a bit about 8848, which oh, is right, a name right. we don't hear anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, know the significance of that number? Yes, it's the actually one meter less than the that's, actual height of Mount Everest. Well, that's so, correct. Yes. Yeah. But um, I think it's interesting that, you know, the difference between the pioneers and the settlers, if you think about it, you know, Sina, Sohu Netis, we can talk about that in a minute, but they were, you know, went public in 2000. They were the first sort of Chinese internet portals. But there were others that didn't make it to go public, and one with Ying Highway, 8848. And actually today, when you look at, you know, your company Baidu, for example, Alibaba, Tencent, you'll see they're not, you know, they weren't really in that first wave. So it's no, they weren't. they weren't. To see how some never made it to the, that first hurdle and others, you know, did okay, but other things came along and technology shift. But I'll look up my notes in the meantime. <laughs> Gadi, maybe we can start with you on this, uh, something I wanted to bring up. Um, I remember that, that when I first joined Baidu, we did, it was uh, the fifth anniversary of, of, of our, our listing on NASDAQ. It was in um, 2010. August of 2010, and, and you were part of a group interview that talked to our CEO, Robin Lee, and you asked a really good question uh, that I thought was uh, was important. You said, you know, the Chinese Communist Party is always interested in, in 
in controlling the commanding heights of any strategic sector. And certainly there's no arguing that in the telecoms sector that it's an important sector and that the internet within that is the a commanding height, if not the commanding height. Uh, so how is it that so many of them are, 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 are private sector companies, that they're listed on American stock exchanges, they were founded by uh, returnees, many of whom were American green card or, or passport holders, and with, with American venture capital? Uh, that was a great question, uh, and I, I don't exactly recall Robin's answer to it, I should, but um, maybe we can all talk a little bit about what our theories are. What, why, why was the Internet allowed to be this sort of exception to what was usually a hard and fast rule? My presumption is, uh, well, A, the party knew that it couldn't build these companies themselves at the beginning. They had no understanding of what the Internet was, uh, and they also, I think, were surprised by what it became. Um, and, uh, they were more interested in the infrastructure side controlling the infrastructure side. Right. And, and that they did. Um, uh, they did bring in consultants, outside consultants, to help them build it. But they were closely watched um, and kind of interrogated at every step of the process and actually so Wrong emphasis. The in- they were worried about the pipes and not right. uh, uh, the actual. Exactly. Jeremy, what was what's your, your, your notion? Oh, well, I think it's the same everywhere in the world, really. Uh, I mean, it's been very difficult for incumbents in, say, the media industry to, to succeed at the internet and I think it's got to do with the the nature of the internet itself that presented us with a whole new way of doing business uh, uh, moving information around distributing information and big companies and big and governments didn't get it um, it's not that they haven't tried I mean the people's daily have their search engine that you know has disappeared and there, there was another state funded effort to have a search engine just in recent years and they still can't succeed right so they're just flat-footed by 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 nature. Yeah. About well, Bill Bishop, well, what would you say? Because you were, he's, he's now reformed, but he was once an investment banker. Were you actually working on some of these early internet IPO deals? Uh, no, the Morgan Stanley, where I had worked, uh, did go on to take uh, Cena Public, the first one. Um, okay. But I, I had worked more on the telecom infrastructure. So maybe the backstory is that, you know, before we had the internet, we had to have the, you know, investment in um, fixed infrastructure and ISPs. And the the first time we started to see the state not doing everything was there were companies like Information Highway were actually also ISPs. And they weren't all controlled by the state. That was a big thing. Um, and to, to Jeremy's earlier point, we had to go down to the, the police and register and say that we weren't going to do anything, you know, um, uh, untoward on the, online. But pretty soon there were competing ISPs coming and saying, you know what, we'll fax that form in for you. Um, don't worry about it. And pretty soon they stopped, you know, asking you uh, for your ID and it became a commercial market. So I think it was the infrastructure level because China Telecom at the time wasn't really keeping up with um, what consumers needed. That was the beginnings of saying sort of a private sector involvement. And, um, you know, I think to Gaddy's point, though, you know, as it got bigger, of course, then the state started to say we, we need to have the commanding heights. But it's never really caught up, in my opinion. But that's okay, a yeah. story. I think it just happened too fast for them to be able to. It's to like to a fast growing weed or some sort of triffid or something, you know. The, or a child, they, my God. Well, exactly. <laughs> and if you think of <laughs> other industries, I mean, like the pharmaceutical industry, there's a reason that, you know, GlaxoSmithKline is being investigated. It's because they have a big market share in certain segments. That And why can't the Chinese government just take them? Because... The, it's not easy to do necessarily. Mm. I think the internet is particularly difficult. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's also a philosophical question about what does the Communist Party think about, say, the demise of the Soviet Union? It wasn't really investing, keeping up enough in technology. And, and there was a sense that if they didn't have the internet in some shape or form, that China might go the way of the Soviet Union. But they believe very much in a knowledge economy, which is science, technology, not an information society. So they sort of invest in infrastructure and then we'll figure out how to control it rather than just ha- not have the infrastructure. I think they were pretty clear 
about this informatization or sure. they needed to have it. So that then all the contradictions started to let's, emerge. Let's well, decide there, once and for all how to say that word. There's, there's now this new leading group chaired by Xi Jinping on internet security and informatization. Exactly. Right. And it depends. I mean, they would like to, you know, reshape the internet. They are. Vision, and they're writing the, the, the head so. of the office, Liu Wei, who he's now writing a new internet plan for China. Well, people had sold visions so. to China of a China-wide web, including Peter Yip. The first China, sort of China internet bubble really came as a result of China.com going public in Hong Kong in 1999. And China.com, let's explain, was a it was a portal, basically, based it, on the kind of Yahoo model. It was. And actually, uh, bizarrely, it was actually blocked in the mainland at the time they were going That's public. Right. So, but it was the concept of China and the Internet. People suddenly put these two together and got very excited. Um, but there was all, there's long been visions to create an intranet or a, a web that China could control. And I think still there's that wet dream, if you want, of regular. In some ways, it's been realized. Yeah, I don't think it's just a wet dream. It's okay, so let's... Consummated. Let's um, mark off the end of the first chapter. So the, for the first four years, let's say, until, say, 1998, we were, we're still toe in the water. This is just sort of experimental stuff. There isn't, I mean, the, the Internet isn't a meaningful part of many people's lives. How many at the end of 1998, Gadi? So at the end of 98, it was one million yeah, people. Yeah, a million people. When you're, to answer your question about 96, I think it was 80,000 people uh, in 96. Right. Uh, and a million people by the end of 90. Wow, I was one of them. Right, I, I, it, it's always um, astonishing to imagine that at the time of uh, the Belgrade embassy bombing, there were only a million plus, a million give or take, on the internet at the time, and already it was sort of this hotbed of conspiracy, and there were already like patriotic hacker groups. And to that running. point, what was interesting is that most of the activism that the government was worried about online, almost all of it was nationalist oriented. It was, right, they were worried. Uh, the 96 about incident was about uh, the Diao Yu Senkakus. Uh, they shut down that bulletin board. Uh, in 98, there was the Indonesia uh, uh, ethnic riots mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and violence that uh, the information filtered in over the Internet overseas because the uh, Chinese, prop, prop Chinese media wasn't covering it. It's uh, all fire hose. It's all yeah. putting out these sort of ar ar these ardent patriots. And, and then, of course, there's, uh, there's the embassy bombing. The, the other thing that's interesting from those early days is, in fact, is 96 was 95, between 95 and 96, the emergence of the Juling poisoning case, where oh, right. this uh, Tsinghua University student who'd allegedly been poisoned by her roommate, who's allegedly connected to some uh, rather senior officials, and the crime was allegedly covered up, and her friends sort of became... Uh, online activists first asking Usenet groups abroad to help them diagnose what had got wrong, uh, what had gone wrong. It was also the, sick. the first, the first sort of human flesh search. The first human flesh search engine and the first case really of social activism way back then. I, I read last year that the reemergence of that case meant that people power had won. Right. So. Oh, then it was shut down. Yeah. Uh, it was oh. amazing. It was it was uh, big for about three weeks, and then yeah, it's gone. How did that happen? Okay. Um. So chapter two really is the remarkable. The, <laughs> maybe if we, if we want to uh, call it ch chapter two was you know the first gold rush, the age of the portals, um, you know the first listings, all the way through the crash. Right. So, Duncan, this is this is a, a, a time where you were very very active already. Uh, I was working in an internet company already at that time. Uh, those were the go-go days. Those were some very exciting times, right? Well, paint us a picture. What did, it, what did it feel like when we suddenly saw all this VC money rushing and we suddenly saw all these people heading back in droves? I mean, there were, there were herds of sea turtles, you know, crossing the Pacific between, from, from California back to, to China. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty small group at the beginning, right? I mean, if you think about it, uh, Sina had emerged from the merger of uh, Stone Ridge Side here and, uh, and uh, Taiwan and so on. Um, we had Nettie's, William Ding who was an engineer. Um, you know, from, a sea turtle. 
Not, not, not so, so exactly. We had, yeah. you know, so in the case of Sina, it's sort of a mix of a mainland and a Taiwan sort of U.S. thing. In the case of Nettie's, it, it was very much a homegrown yeah. uh, guy yeah. who'd moved around the country. He'd moved from Ningbo to, um, to, to Chengdu down to Guangzhou. And actually, I remember when he moved to Beijing and I was calling, sending him some documents, he was literally answering the phone and pressing the fax button. I mean, so he was, you know, uh, it was very much a very small entity, Nettie's, but he'd impressed people pretty early on with his savvy, as had, we should say, Charles Zhang. I mean, Charles Zhang Absolutely. Was, for Sohu pretty much was, you know, the earliest to really, I think, see the, op- the size of the opportunity. Uh, Sohu initially was known as S-O-H-O-O, Sohu. Uh, he he said it wasn't because of Yahoo, but one one thinks uh, otherwise. They changed the name, claiming that some Korean company had the name. But anyway, it was very much following Jerry Yang. Let's think back that Yahoo was really the the gold dust back then. Everything that Jerry did. Jerry Yang was the man. He was. The and when you know, uh, I had the opportunity to meet. Uh, actually, I was traveling around with uh, Jerry Yang and a, one of his friends from Stanford, and walk into a bar where. Um, Charles Zhang was uh, with domestic media, and suddenly <laughs> the look on his face because this was his idol, you know. And he, he uh, Jerry Yang, there was a long expectation that this this Chinese ethnic Chinese hero would come to China, and it's an interesting backstory to what's happened today with Alibaba. But he was very much somebody that uh, I think influenced Charles Zhang. Uh, literally, he would Charles would say, "What did Jerry do a year ago? I will do this," you know. And so Charles Yahoo also was, had another major patron in John Negroponte, though, right? Uh, yes, uh, Nicholas. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Nicholas Negroponte, his brother. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of uh, high-profile oh, Negroponte. I remember going to an event at the China World back then yes. with Charles Jung and Nicholas Negroponte and yeah. digital. I think that was when I first thought of the f- phrase. No, no, no. Douchebaggery. <laughs> no, no, no. That was much later, Jerry. Was that Jerry, later? Jerry, Jerry, There's yeah. one unsung hero I think we should we should also mention is Edward Zeng from Spark Eyes. Oh, absolutely. Do you remember? Sure. So at the time, you know, the, the internet, getting online was a big deal. So there, at China World, Edward had opened this internet cafe and a few other places and played the most amazing PR game of spinning himself to be this incredibly connected. And actually, Bill Clinton showed up there. Bill, right? uh, Hillary, uh, Hillary Clinton, Clinton. came. No, Bill, Bill was there, too. I think Hillary came for, wait, maybe they were both there. But uh, no, no, Hillary came during the women's conference, '96, right? And uh, then yeah. Bill Bill came later. Okay. And, and so, uh, so anyway, but there were there were people who you know just getting online. So the internet cafe was a very hot thing back then, of course. But then we started to see, I think, with Cena, Sohu Nettis, that was something you know advertising, you know, online advertising was going to be the big thing, and content suddenly became king. Remember this. Uh, the killer app and all right. that sort of stuff. Content but it was king. such a small market when we look back. <laughs> it was, I think, a Some of the things $2 million dollar market in 1998, right. 99. Duncan, um, let me just, we, we should keep a sort of open where are they now file here. And so what happened to Edward Zang? I ran into him just a month ago at, the, at a reception um, for the Israeli, Shimon Perez was visiting China and he is uh, doing stuff in Inner Mongolia and actually bringing in investment to some places in Inner Mongolia. And he looked he, the he's same. He reinvented great. himself many a time. I mean, I remember that in, in say, 06 or 07, he was pushing RFID in a yes. huge way, believing that he was going to revolutionize, revolutionize supply chains the world. So if you over. want to invest in Inner Mongolia, Edward Zhang is, is your guy. So. Okay. I will keep that in mind. What a character that was. Um, so let's let's talk about the run up to um, the Cena listing. I mean, let, let's find out. You know, I, right, I know Bill people, likes uh, the VIE structure. Right, right? exactly. Uh, Bill, Bill, explain to us <laughs> what 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 the media rules were. I mean, the rules regarding foreign investment in in media and specifically in they the couldn't. internet. Okay. I mean, the rules were pretty simple. Foreigners and so, couldn't invest in these companies. And so, how did they get around it? Still are. Well, so they set up a structure where you have a. Um, you know, all these companies have an offshore entity where a lot of, where the venture capital money and if they go public, the public capital flows. And that offshore venture will own what's called a wholly owned foreign entity inside a China, a right. WUFI. Um, and then the WUFI will have these 
contractual arrangements with a local company that actually that has actually the operating holds licenses, these licenses right. and theoretically uh, controls the local company and can switch out the shareholders, et cetera. The shareholders have to be at least two PRC citizens. There have been, of course, some corporate attempts, uh, News Corp, uh, you know, with China Byte, right? partnering with uh, People's Daily. That's right. Uh, from where we you know, had Scarlett Lee and Fritz, Fritz Demopoulos. Fritz and, you know, yeah, lots of so, so there had been an attempt. Uh, that was a very early joint venture, but it pretty quickly became apparent it's going to be very difficult for media companies to right. have a JV in this sensitive area. So um, how is it possible that the SEC could have gotten comfortable with this? How is it possible the that... The SEC, all you have to do is you just have to disclose what the risks are. As long as your risk disclosure is fine, it, it, acceptable, the SEC will approve it. They're not going to... You know, you know, they're not the ones who are going to be the arbiters. And, if, and the reality is the VIE structure is is a, is a long-used and accepted structure in accounting as long as it's done properly. So this was just an application of an existing concept to the That's Chinese right. Internet. And it's really known as a Cena structure. Casino was the ones who Pioneered revolutionized it. it. And you said, who, I mean, who? Duncan, who, who was the head of the MII then? It was called the MII. So uh, Minister uh, Wu Jichuan, who had been the Minister of Post and Telecom at the, t- at the time, you know, was known as a very conservative fellow, uh, although he'd presided over this uh, huge increase in infrastructure. And uh, yeah, he'd been very negative about having foreign participation in telecoms. Remember the whole uh, CC- CCF C- or something why they were basically he was policing. That, that probably requires some explanation. So yeah, CCF, I mean, China, 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 China was, foreign was almost like a VIE structure in the sense that, you know, companies uh, like, uh, you know, Bell South or Deutsche Telekom or others wanted to invest in China. I actually moved to China thinking that the market was opening to foreign telecom companies. I'm still here <laughs> waiting for that moment. Um, but actually, the idea, like in Indonesia and Malaysia, that, you know, Western companies would buy Shanghai and buy Guangdong. It never happened, partly because Wu Jichuan uh, oversaw the creation of China Mobile, Telecom, Unicom, and listed them overseas, uh, but retaining party and state control. But um, in terms of the internet, though, what happened, I think his decision to allow Sina to go public, and it very much was his decision uh, as the minister, um, was revolutionary. Because had that April 2000 IPO of Sina not happened, Nothing else in terms of the internet content could have got, happened given the markets were just collapsing at that time. Remember, the U.S., the Nasdaq had already started to collapse and the, the, the bubble was over. And, uh, you know, they almost didn't survive Sina Sohunetti's this crash, but they wouldn't have gone public without this VIE structure. So who are the others back then? Who are the big players back then? Some of these have disappeared. Some of them have continued on. Uh, but, of course, you know, Sina Sohunetti's were, were they went public. Yitang, there's something, you know. They were also right. a portal originally, right? And then they kind of became Who knows what they became. And then Citrup bought them or something. And then Xiaoyibo, no, no, uh, no. of course, had sold his business to uh, to eBay, but that came later. Yitang, didn't, didn't, didn't uh, uh, Elong buy them? Elong, yeah. Yeah, they, were, they, were, they, were, they merged in Elong, and then the founder, yeah. Justin, went on to become a private equity guy. Yes. Right, that's right. With Blue Ridge uh, Capital. That's and that's correct. Xiao Yibo had you know uh, founded uh, EachNet, who was another fascinating character. Yes. I mean Xiao Yibo, he was one of these these child prodigies. Uh, Absolutely you know, right. Was, I think it was fifteen. I think he entered. Yeah, there the, were a, a uh, number of them who Harvard and went then, on yeah. to become quite famous. And and Xiao Wright sold his company to eBay and then went on to have his ass handed to him by Jack Ma. No, he didn't. He was not really. He was out no, by no, then. No, he was. No, out. No, he was no, no, eBay was, messed was, up the eBay, integration. He, he was involved, but eBay. He was control. still there until two thousand four or five. But, but, but he he'd already, the, yeah. He was not the decision maker. Okay. He okay. was not the decider. That's as, fair enough. So it was Meg Whitman who. No, eBay pretty quickly after buying their initial stake in the company froze all development in China, hosted everything back in the states, Parachute which is a disaster. A uh, and then wanted, of course, famously to charge merchants to list, and Alibaba came in, you know, see with the t- you know the whole Taobao story. Right. He, um, he said free is not a business model. 
That right. was he, he famously declared that and was proven quite wrong. Um, but what about these foreign companies who were trying to come in at the time? All through this time, I mean, we, we had Lenovo try twice to, to, to set up. I mean, they were called Legend. Right? Yeah, I was working uh, with right, AOL at that time. Working with AOL, AOL right. They had a partnership with AOL. With AOL but it was, they sort of missed the narrowband ISP thing, and there was a hope to do the broadband thing, but it was too early. So it never happened. Uh, AOL had other distractions, obviously, with Time Warner. <laughs> this is this is a question I get asked an awful lot, and I would love to hear how you guys weigh in on it. Um, maybe we can start with Gotti. Uh, where where do you think? I mean, if there's a common thread among all all the the foreign internet company failures in China, what what, what would you what would you say it is? Or is there not a common thread? Are they all sort of, um, you know? Yeah, I'm trying to, to think back. I mean, I think each case has its own lessons, obviously. Um, you, 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 you always hear, you know, didn't uh, tried to put in foreign managers. I think that was an early uh, common mistake. Uh, it wasn't probably a factor in later failures. Um, but uh, people didn't use Chinese management teams or pay attention to what, how the product was being used in Chinese. So um, just sort of lack of localization. Um, in, in lack of localization, lack of understanding of how Chinese interact with the Internet. Um, and uh, I mean the 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 eBay Taobao case is a pretty clear that this free is an honest business model thing is a pretty clear case of not understanding the Chinese market <laughs> um, and not understanding the potential for just building a huge user base. I mean, you just look at the QQ model of how to succeed. Uh, just develop uh, a huge user base, even with a free product, and then go from there. Uh, that was the Chinese model. It's not how the how the foreign internet companies uh, built their businesses. Jeremy, what would your two cents be to, uh, I mean, if somebody were to, to, to ask you about sort of the historical experience of foreign internet companies here? And I, I think that's true. I mean, the, there's a lot of it is can be attributed to the foreign companies just not getting China or uh, not making it, a, uh, not giving the, the China office uh, enough power to make decisions. Um, obviously, uh, government interference of one kind or another is 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 a factor uh, because you can't run a company uh, like a, uh, you do in any other country in the world, pretty much, mm. except maybe mm. for Saudi Arabia. If you're running it in China, it's just a whole different set of rules, and it's very difficult for foreign companies to deal with that. Right. Online gaming is a clear example of that. Yeah, yeah. online gaming. They, they made things very difficult for foreign players uh, in terms of licenses and that's right, and enforcing people in the JVs on. And, and even though the content itself wasn't a problem, so it's right. not actually even censorship we're talking about. It's other things. Right. Bill, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I think also you know what you saw with a lot of the foreign companies who came here is you know they were. Um, they were sending over managers, and they're competing with some of the best entrepreneurs in the world. And so there were there there are lots of challenges of any startup in any market. Manager is no match for an entrepreneur. I think it's very difficult, and I think you also you layer yeah. on the cultural issues, you layer on the speed issues, and you know some some pretty obvious protectionism and discrimination. Plus, you're competing companies. against numbers, not just one Chinese competitor, right. but That's multiple right. Chinese right. competitors, and, so, and the ruthless. These yeah, guys are so it's going to be interesting. A lot of them now. are losing. Most many so, of the Chinese competitors. Yeah, are losing, exactly. I mean, but, the Chinese companies competitors can't they can't figure out the government stuff. They can't. Figure, they have all their own issues. One of the things going to be interesting in the next twenty years of Chinese internet is what happens as these Chinese companies go out and try and go to developed markets and do they really have a stand a chance of competing or are they going to run into some of the same problems that, that right. the foreign companies face? At the very least, we should hope that they've, they've learned their lessons, they know where the pitfalls are, they're, they're clearly not, marked now, maybe. but they're probably not, right? I, I blame it all on conference calls. This is an American <laughs> predilection for conference calls and guess who had to stay up late? You know, it was the people in China. You right, know, of and, course. And managing remotely and, you know, also getting corporate counsel to sign off on stuff that fundamentally well, is gray. I mean, they're contradictory right. areas. That's the other point, too, is, is the foreign companies obey the law. So, I mean, one, one, one other example... <laughs> 
no, but no, seriously. No, no, no you're right, to, you're to, right. To, to, not that Chinese companies don't all obey the law, but to, to Duncan's point, which is there's black, there's white, there's gray. And in China, lots of stuff is gray. But for these foreign internet companies, Most especially the ones especially the ones that are, are public, My white they shirts don't are do gray. gray. No, they don't do gray. And so one of the issues for eBay, too, was let's not forget, Taobao used to be the largest pirate site in the world. Right, it had no issues with selling counterfeit stuff, you know, fake stuff, whatever. That's changed, but at the time, eBay had problems with selling stuff that Chinese consumers wanted. Well, Americans did that to the Brits, but that's another story. We go back. There's a years. certain level of hubris well, here. Let me, I'm uh, not, again, I mean, this is you know, there's things to repeat. There's an evolution the here. Yeah. There's a certain level of hubris here. I mean, these are not. We're not talking about uh, you know, centuries-old companies that have been through vicissitudes of you know, business cycles and have institutional wisdom that they've been passing along. Uh, no, the, these are companies that are at best a year or two older than their Chinese competitors, and they're not necessarily better funded either, right? Uh, again, I think uh, Bill, Bill's, Bill was very, not very. Pre- I mean, you're, you're you're right on. A manager versus an entrepreneur? No way. These entrepreneurs also, I mean, they've been squeezing water out of rocks. They've been trying to get the, the, the notoriously parsimonious Chinese, you know, uh, customer to part with money. Uh, I mean, in some very ingenious ways. You guys remember those gaming cards that you could buy? I mean. Those scratch cards. Uh, Duncan, explain that. that that's, that's fascinating. That was something that was a Chinese innovation. Any kiosk you go to, you could have bought a NetEase. I think it was actually computer. like a lot, most of the gaming innovations actually came from Korea and were brought into China. Okay, well, they were brought into China, but they certainly weren't American. Yeah, I mean, selling a game as, a, as an experience rather than as a product. I mean, you know, consoles had failed partly because they'd been banned, but also anything that was <laughs> shrink wrapped, it's going to be copied. Exactly right. I mean, everything was copied back then. But so to actually get people to pay to play, this was the revolution. Some of, a lot of these ideas came from Korea, but the way that you had to do distribution was very different because China had so little e-commerce infrastructure payment. It, you had to make it up yourself. Right. So you'd buy thirty Korea hours worth. Basically right. sold, whereas China's you know much much broader geography, obviously. But, but that's a very good point, Kaiser, because I think a lot of these American internet companies that succeeded on their first go didn't innovate beyond their first product. And so obviously when they come to China where they're, they're doing iterations One very size fast, should fit all, right? Huh. And, uh, and they still didn't. You know, look at AOL, which, you know, I, I used here in China. I, we're talking about our first Internet experiences. <laughs> I came on online in 2002, uh, and AOL was useful at that time as a way to get around uh, the Absolutely. then new Great Firewall. Right, right. Um, and that was the reason I had AOL to browse uh, the foreign Internet um, Anyways, uh, but that was all EOL was useful for, and I continued paying my $15 a month for a couple of years. To, to your question, I think one of your questions was sort of who's been the most successful foreign company here? I'd say Google, right? Absolutely. I no, NASPERS. I, NASPERS. Well, too. Well, well, what, what are your metrics? If your metric is shareholder value, then Amazon, Yahoo, SoftBank, and Yahoo, and Yahoo. That's not my metric. But those are investors. But they, those are. But when you run a company, you're running, especially if you're a public company, you are you are trying to create shareholder value. So from that perspective, if you're running the company, yes, you've been way more successful at Yahoo or Naspers or SoftBank. Jeremy's being too modest about his South African. No, I mean Naspers is an. Well, how much they made on how much they made on Tencent? Like like 40, 35 billion. As far as I know, it's their biggest thing in the whole world. Oh, they've made a huge. I mean, it's made a lot of SoftBank so far. But I think the question was different. The question was companies operating a service here. These are just investors. They're not operating a service. That's. A different well, then, thing. Then I Google would put, was the best. Naspers is in a different category from just a VC thing. And one of the reasons that uh, Pony Ma wanted them in, actually, was that they weren't going to just exit and sell. He'd already had that. Uh, Richard Lee, had, in his wisdom from PCSW, had sold some of his stake to Naspers. I think he probably regrets that. Uh, but, that but yeah, you're right. I think in terms of those operating versus those investing, we can draw the line. 
Um, and there, I mean, I have to say that Yahoo's uh, decision, Jerry Yang's decision, ultimately to put this billion-dollar bet on Alibaba is going. You know, at the time, was ridiculed, mm-hmm. um, and you know, he's already, of course, was criticized later for not selling the company to Microsoft. But this now is is an act of genius when you look back at it, as well as Masir Shison, very early two thousand investment yeah. in Alibaba. Let's talk a little bit about now the crash, uh, the first crash. I mean, when when everything came, came down in two thousand two, a lot of companies went under. Uh, and the the revival. I mean, there was there was the threat of delisting uh, certain internet companies. I, I won't name names, but only basically made it because of of uh, the exceptions made for sub dollar uh, stock prices over, over three months because of September eleventh. Right. It's only because of of what happened in in, in September of two thousand one that some of these were allowed to live on uh, and not be delisted. Uh, but then there was this miraculous recovery. And by 2003, what were the three best performing stocks of the year 2003 on NASDAQ? Sina, Sohu, and NetEase. Yeah, I think NetEase led the way. Interestingly, NetEase, they all, all had been predicated on online advertising. which That's was right. much smaller than people had forecast because it was very difficult to get agencies to buy into this. And they love their television and radio and print. So they were all struggling. Um, most of them had, I think they dropped about 2 or $1 a share. That's right. I had actually, I'd been on the advisory board for NetEase, stepped down, there had been some management chaos, and so I'd, it looked like they wouldn't survive. And NetEase actually got into trouble on some other yeah, advertising-related problem. That's and then right. they had to discover something else, and they discovered uh, the value Wireless of messaging. Value. Yeah, yeah so SMS-related stuff. SMS wasn't really understood by the U.S. investors then because they didn't have SMS or text messaging. Uh, China was a, you know, was seeing a huge boom, and SARS was a major factor in this. In 2003, the spread of information about what was happening with SARS really helped recognize. You know, everybody woke so up. We to were all told to was. boil vinegar in our. But it doesn't. Right. How still exactly do. were they making their money from messaging? It was ringtone downloads. Was one right, so thing. Ringtone screensavers. Again, and, so, I mean, this is under Wu Jituan. You know, my my sort of unsung hero, the minister. You know, China Telecom at the time, which became China Mobile, started having revenue sharing with private sector companies. It's called the Montrenet. The Montrenet, the right. mobile internet, um, to share um, revenues. Um, I believe it was 90%. Uh, it was modeled on so Docomo in Japan. It was 80-20, right? I think it was. Uh, it came, that, yeah, yeah, they yeah. moved it around. But it was a quite radical thing that these state-owned companies would actually partner with content providers. And, right. and so that really was, that was that saved Netties. The stock went from a dollar to $70. Uh, and yeah, so we saw this takeoff. And SARS really was the wake-up call for that. Well, I, I had no idea that it was really SARS. I had completely forgotten that that was in April of 2003. So, yeah, it makes perfect sense. That's that when SMS the became the essential means of communication. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, obviously, CCTV had a big impact when they came out and made the official warning. But ahead of that, several months, you know, it started in Guangdong yeah. and people started to spread information. The, the rumors, as the government might call them, also spread. I remember getting text messages about how they were sending planes above Beijing to dump, you know, uh, disinfectant upon the whole so city. So SMS literally went... indoors. <laughs> exactly. It literally went viral. Sorry. It was the Weibo. It was the Weibo of its time. <laughs> so that, that was the, the, uh, another strange little chapter. But... Um, we emerge from that into the mid two thousands uh, when we start seeing what I would call sort of the mature years of the Chinese internet, where we we start seeing companies like Alibaba and Taobao really when it was Baidu listed in two thousand five, Shanda, Shanda, exactly, right, Ctrip, exactly. These are the companies that are on uh, the list that I see here. We saw a number of listings of of, of Chinese companies on U.S. bourses. Uh, those are sort of the fat years. But then we start seeing a, a bunch of interesting crazes. Uh, where where we had like kind of um, people rushing. Let's. I think I I can knock off a few. Bill, maybe help me out here. There was internet video, right? And at one point, I remember reading that there were some two hundred odd internet video plays in the Chinese internet. Is that an exaggeration? Or do you think that was about right? That's about right. 
um, gaming was big. I mean, you know, gaming was absolutely huge. Yeah, investor money is going to flow to where the action is, and you know, video was going to be big. Gaming was hot, and so dozens and dozens of companies got funded. I think right. Gary Wong at Tudo. I think yeah. he created Tudo a week or oh, two before uh, YouTube. But no, he, not, created, not before. he created. He was a podcast, podcast, though. It was a podcast. Right, but you know, who uses that medium, medium anymore? Yeah. Dear, we, dear listeners. <laughs> yeah, dear listeners. <laughs> well, if they saw our faces, they, they'll, they'll stick to the podcast. Right, 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 right. <laughs> uh, what was the next craze after that, then? Uh, after video? Well, gaming, I think, you know, you have to, I mean, gaming became the biggest thing in the Chinese internet. It was twice um, the revenues of, of, of yeah, advertising billions of dollars by 2007 yeah. and eight. Right. Yeah, so I think gaming, you know, Shanda, uh, again, which listed in 2004, I think, you know, so Shanda led the way with games. Tell um, us a little bit about Chen Tianqiao. Yeah, so I mean, he's you know he's a pioneer in that industry. He obviously has gone into many different directions with Shanda, and it's sort of, but it very much made the the market that Netties, uh, sorry, yeah, the Tencent and Netties kind of inherited. Uh, Netties, of course, had uh, you know discovered SMS, and then it discovered games. Tencent got to the size it is today because of games, but I, we can say that Shanda really paved the way uh, with some of those early titles. Um, Absolutely, uh, Jeremy. What, was, what about? Group buying that came group buying a little bit later. A little bit later, right? What was that like? Twenty ten? No, earlier, I think. Yeah. Tw- Two thousand nine. Whatever Groupon was, it was. Mm-hmm. Group was yeah, it, but it, I mean, group buying preceded fade? Groupon in China. I think. I mean, the original group buying concept wasn't Groupon. It was uh, consumers get together on the internet and buy cars or apartments or buy, right, right. buy stuff together. It wasn't a. But speaking of numbers, once it did get to become Groupon clones, then you were in the thousands, not just the hundreds. Not just yeah, hundreds. No, you actually right. had thousands, thousands of Groupon clones. clones. Is yeah. Groupon still a thing in the United yeah, States? Yeah, still I, still I, I guess. I guess. What a I mean, you know, company. Anyway, but, but it's still happening here. I mean, there's quite a bit. I mean, Meituan right. is still. Well, Meituan's doing well. We bought Nomi, Lasho and Nomi. We actually acquired Nomi. Right. You acquired Nomi. Yeah, we acquired Nomi outright. Meituan Wangxing's most successful. Clone. Hasn't exited yet, but yeah, it looks like it. Well, I mean, speaking of unsung heroes, I mean, maybe since we did talk about Meituan, I mean, maybe he, he's somebody probably worth worth mentioning. Wang Xing, who, well, who Shadi wrote a cover story on, right? Yeah, yeah, Shadi yeah, wrote, wrote on him for Forbes Asia. Let's uh, let's t- tell 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 us about Wang Xing. I've met him on a number of occasions. Uh, he's a he's just a deeply geeky fella. Totally geeky. And when I asked him, you know, he he's so he copied Friendster. Then, which that didn't go anywhere. Well, just like Friendster. <laughs> uh, oh, I should admit that I was actually on the board of advisors of Friendster. <laughs> then he copied, of course, he copied Facebook, and that, which became Renren, and he sold out uh, too early from that, but he still, he made... He made like uh, one and a half he million. A, he made a few million dollars. Yeah, okay, um, and, then, uh, uh, and then he copied Twitter with uh, Fanfo, uh, which, of course, didn't work out because so well. of those damned Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Well, he, didn't, he didn't censor it very well. Um, right. But it also had none of the, you know, kind of functionality that Weibo has. Uh, it was a Twitter clone. It was a total clone. Right. Um, Which is to say that Twitter has none of that functionality. And then, of course, <laughs> and then of course Groupon. And I asked him when he clones these things, because Facebook also looked exactly the same. Down uh, to, it, said, it actually said, like, a Mark... Zuckerberg production <laughs> actually said that. On, uh, that's that's the rumor. That's what it. Uh, I I don't I don't know if that actually is the case. But I, I asked it, him why you know, why he went with just an exact copy and didn't like try and innovate on top of the the look. And he said they did it really well. I just wanted to make a perfect copy. Um, <laughs> and uh, and he did pretty well with that uh, strategy. And Meituan, the the group on clone that he developed. I mean that is actually against all odds that um, that actually that one is going to end up being his most successful if it does because. That's a, such a losing business model, uh, and there were thousands of competitors, all very well funded. And it speaks to his perseverance and determination. I think that he's 
he's still kicking with it. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, he is just he is an engineer. I mean. So one of the things that happened along the way, of course, um, you know, especially with the rise of social media, but it didn't even happen before that. Okay, J- Jeremy, do you remember, what do you think was the first full-fledged meme on the Chinese internet? Whoa. I think I would say it was the song Dongbei Ren Do Shuhole Feng that was circulated I, as a video, an animated video in 2002. Uh, by email, 2002. Right. right. And it was so weird because it just Lao came Zhang out of nowhere. What the, the, the singer's name? I, I don't remember. Yeah. I, I can't even a bring Dumbe him up. My wife so hates him for some reason. I have yeah, no this little animation about uh, a, a car accident and then Dongbei and also wonderful. That's ah, people from the Northeast. Yeah. Oh. So they, they're all living late. You're still BeijingRocker at Yahoo.com, right? Is that your still email? <laughs> <laughs> Just on a <laughs> So yeah, that I would say was the first meme in the way we understand it today. Yeah, yeah, the, good. I'm, I'm glad we're on the same page. But then there's been this mad meme explosion. I want to throw out a couple of observations about the, the, the Chinese Internet and see if, if you guys agree. I would say that uh, the Chinese Internet is of a sort of tighter weave than, uh, than, than its, its Western counterpart, so, such that a meme or, or uh, some, some new you know, neologism or just some, some, some f- funny little thing will cover ground much faster and much more, more thoroughly, and it will reach into all corners. Part of this is a function of the relative homogeneity culturally uh, of, of the users, but uh, that's always struck me as, as something. Uh, do, Bill, do you agree? Do you think that it's, it, it, there's, there's maybe less diversity? There aren't little you know, cliques and, and, and clubs? Oh, I think there are lots of cliques and clubs, but I do think that memes will spread faster and more broadly. What do, you, what, do you th- what do you suppose accounts for that? Um, part of it is, I think you look at the... the, the I, w- I would guess that it's, you look at who uses the internet, and you know this is their this is their media consumption. I mean, nobody believes official media. This is there's no there are no other real choices like there are in the mm-hmm, U.S. or, mm-hmm. or developed markets for internet. This is it. Right, and uh, even and, when and they right, you know, and I mean, you know, things are to your point. There, there, you know, homogeneity plays a factor, and but you know, there's also, um, e- you know, each of these services. If you look at Weibo or you look at, you know, they all have tens, hundreds of millions of people. So if one thing goes viral, it's going to go viral in a huge way. What are some of the other things that you think separate uh, Chinese Internet culture from, from uh, the more familiar Internet culture of the Anglophone world? You guys, anything strike you? Well, I mean, I think uh, to Bill's point, I mean, the offline equivalent is so unattractive and so absent from the lives of young people that you don't see the integration that you see in the U.S., for example, where you know, big, you know, uh, broadcasters actually still are very, very active online and vice versa. There's a lot of cross-feeding. You, you hardly there's, see... There's I mean, the occasional television show that'll that'll get a lot of buzz online. You know. And then they get shut down, right? I mean, this, this is, is the true. thing. The, the problem is that the the desire to have control over the, the television stations ultimately means they can't really innovate. Right. And so when they do, they get slapped down. For example, online voting or SMS voting for, With you know, m- Supergirl m- and things chow, like that. Chow, yeah. So it's a fundamental, as long as they want to have control of these broadcasters, they're not going to be innovative. And when they do innovate, they, they do get pushed aside. So I think that that's a very different approach that, as Bill said, this is the primary means of communications uh, and entertainment, particularly for young people who never, never watch television. Hmm. So... Um, I, I want to go around the room and say, what do you think are the next uh, major industries over which internet companies are apt to run roughshod? They're going to you know, visit their own particular brand of creative destruction on. Uh, I think we're all already seeing the beginnings of one, obviously, which is with finance. The fi- finance, right? Yeah, as much as the government will 
let them get away with it. Is, is, is this following familiar patterns? I mean, where there's they're sort of more asking forgiveness than asking permission? Or do you think that there there's a little more reluctance to, to go right, tilt right at finance? To me, to me, it's kind of like WTO. You know, remember when China was exceeding or re-entering WTO, they were using the threat of foreign competition to clean up the, the Chinese banks, to get them to, to move on. And I think the same thing's going on here. The, the threat of getting Alibaba and Tencent, you know, more heavily into into financial products. Yeah, Baidu. Uh, and Baidu, of course, as you've just told me to add, um, <laughs> which I would have said anyway. Um, but bat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, bat. bat. Okay, That's right. That's why so. Gadi came. Yeah. Did we already have the thirty-minute disclaimer about Baidu? Uh, yeah, you missed that. Music you, going you over in the room. You know, <laughs> did that. Yeah. So I think that it's kind of a stick to beat these banks by and the and the SOEs by. But you know, you know, Jack Ma and others have you know been. Uh, Courting very assiduously, you know, uh, Li Keqiang and, and uh, others. So, you know, there, there isn't a, a sense that they, they can be useful allies in reform. But if they go too far, then, you know, we've seen some pretty uh, tough talk um, between. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I think the, the banks are not under threat. No. These guys. But no, they're not. They're getting the message that they need to be a little more innovative and a little more responsive to customer demands. Yeah, I, I think the world's changed. I think people are sort of accustomed now to, 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 to seeing what the Internet can do in terms of. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they know that uh, they need to get their shop in order. Speaking of which, by the way, the next big thing is, is shopping, really. I mean, right. we, we just, I mean, the complete transformation of the retail experience in, in China. I mean, that's something or that... That's the already thing, isn't it? I mean... I think we're a long way to... I, mean, it, I think it's I, still... Early I mean, e-commerce is still going to, to, to be huge. But I mean, it's... Maybe even take it to another level. It's, it basically put the private sector on a pedestal. It made heroes of entrepreneurs not just in their local village or community, but nationally, now internationally. So I think it was kind of the steroid that really, you know, the internet enabled, we all knew that China had this entrepreneurial talent, but you never really saw it on a big scale. So we're seeing it now in commerce, and we're now seeing it in other areas that, you know, these guys are suddenly gods, basically. And I think around commerce, what's interesting, too, is because we, you know, especially all of us, we don't really get into the weeds, so to speak, but the, what, what the internet is doing to the rural society um, Absolutely. Both, both in terms of sort of more and more knowledge about prices and distribution, but also allowing these people to sell products directly from the villages on Taobao or, or and Tmall, which then marries in with what Jack Ma and these other guys are doing with logistics and distribution so that you're going to see, I think, a much more, um, you know, the potential for, for some of these very remote and very poor rural villages to actually, some of them will be, will be able to use e-commerce to actually, I think, right. significantly improve livelihoods, some of them. It, it does help inform them more. I ran this and in, ran into this on a story I did about uh, you know municipal tree planting schemes, uh, because of course uh, many people like you know with trees on their mountainside patch are they're having their trees taken or they're they're selling them, uh, and middlemen are usually uh, with information arbitrage. You know, yeah. tree but uh, they can Chong, they can uh, they can check the prices of their trees online. It's and, transparency. Uh, I mean that's the uh, thing is ultimately so <laughs> transparency everywhere. Yeah, that's right. Um, I would think another uh, sector um, that hasn't, I think, become big yet, but that could become big over time that the state has a lot of interest in is education and e-learning. Absolutely. That's, that's um, the, the one that I see happening next in a, in a very, very big and way. And it is already happening. I mean, the, right. you know, there are a number of uh, listed companies listed on uh, foreign uh, stock exchanges uh, in online education. Yeah. It, it's when big. did you get uh, Oriental? That went up in like 206? Yeah, I mean, some of them are offline, like testing centers, right, right, things like centers, that. But, um, these the the, the education is highly, highly fragmented, though. So yeah, it takes a long time to have the impact. That and it's, it's also highly, highly regulated. It's, it's going to be very, very difficult to get the government to actually accept these, these Internet education programs to sort of give them 
to to be able to grant degrees or allow you to use right. what you learn. And until that happens, a lot of parents will yeah. stay away from. So it's uh, it's sort of a what's the word? It's it's kind of the bushibana. It's it's the sort of extra study to help you practice for your traditional curriculum. But grammar. the d- demand is there. You know, okay. That's for sure. Uh, unfortunately, it's now 7.15. I, I, I need to, to, to take off here. So let's very, very quickly go around and do recommendations, if possible, uh, and then uh, close out the show. Thanks, guys. That was really a, a ton of fun. Um, why don't we start with you, Jeremy, since you're here on my right. What do you sure. have for this week? Camphorpress.com, a Taiwan-based independent publisher, uh-huh. uh, publishing a range of e-books about uh, East Asia and Taiwan in particular. Ah, very good. Count for press, good. Uh, we'll post a link to this on the site. I think it's um, there's a speech that the the sort of chief internet regulator, a gentleman named Lu Wei, gave last September in London. Yes. Um, about sort of the Chinese, it very much, very clearly articulates the Chinese view towards governance on the internet. And I think that um, since then, he, uh, the this new leading group under Xi Jinping has set up for internet security and informatization. He apparently is the head of that group's office. He's also the head of the the Internet Information Office, is that what it's called? Or, um, so he's, he's pretty much the, the one of the top guys regulating the Internet in China, and he lays out his vision or the government's vision for what the Internet is and how they're going to harness it for both economic potential and technological uh, development for China, as well as control in terms of making sure that it's properly regulated mm-hmm. and quote-unquote mm-hmm. safe. And given that what I understand is he's actually now writing a new Internet plan for China um, I think it's a very important document that um, gives very interesting insight into how the government's looking at you, things. You also had some information on the whereabouts of the five wanted hackers. <laughs> oh, yes. Kaiser will be posting their wanted posters on his site. Right. That's right. Well, that was my link. That's Baidu.com. Yeah. <laughs> Duncan, what do you have for this this week? Well, I'm actually, what I'm going to reread is the Mandiant report from April of last year to compare it with the FBI.gov uh, mugshots because you know they've clearly chosen five where they think they have the strongest case. But there are many other names and companies in that Mandian report. So it'll be quite interesting to see, you know, um, why they've chosen all these five and what's going to happen there. I don't think they're going to be facing any time anytime soon. <laughs> they'll be becoming national folk heroes here in the meantime. While you're reading U.S. government-related documents or leaked document documents that were leaked with the wink and a nod from the White House, uh, you could also read the Huntsman Blair uh, IP Commission <laughs> report from 2013 that also essentially touches on all the issues that um, led to the recent action against uh, who's Chinese the Blair actors. and Huntsman Blair Dennis Ad- Blair Admiral Dennis Blair okay okay excellent um, no I won't be reading that <laughs> I just have somnia okay, my, my, my recommendation uh, is, is non China so. well sort of related to China I, I picked up Martin Meredith's The Fate of Africa a really terrific nice juicy <laughs> thick volume on uh, post-colonial African countries and uh, it's really good it's way of introducing yourself to African history and politics Martin you, you've read or, it yeah, or, or, yeah. Or I, I love him I love him I, I really I really love him and uh, I mean I, I, I read this in preparation for a, a deep dive into Howard French's new book I'm really looking forward to to you know seeing how he writes I, I've, I've heard that uh, it's not sort of as heavy-handed as his his Atlantic piece is from a few years back, and it's uh, much more. Well, if we're going to plug non-China books, then of course we should plug uh, Evan Oz's no, Age no, of no, Ambition. No, no. Age of Ambition. <laughs> that, I mean, he's 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 gotten. Uh, he doesn't need us. He's already going to be like, the best seller. I already bought the. Oh, okay, books. we already bought it. Well, I'm, 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 you know, I'm going to plug I'm another author. It, I'll plug another author if you don't mind. Um, plug away. Uh, uh, Especially recommendations. Used to, used to no, live no in Beijing, and it is in Beijing right now. But I haven't. I'm I'm doing this with a caveat. I haven't actually read the book. Well, then don't plug. Just started the first page. But yeah, but this is a Beijing author, okay. or someone who okay. wrote her book here, Sue Barker, 
uh-huh. uh, who was who did live here and now I think still lives here temporarily, has just published or is just publishing a book called The Incarnations, which will be out soon. Fiction or nonfiction? Uh, and it's set in Beijing. That's uh, fiction. Fiction Beijing. novel. Okay. All right, uh, interesting. And it kind of has a couple different time periods in it, but uh, in, in before the kind of the Olympics time is, I think, where it uh, starts out. Do you feature in it, guy? I don't think so. I haven't read it yet. <laughs> okay. Hey, Bill. Thanks for coming. Good to see you, man. Great. Duncan, great to have you finally. Thanks for ha- having me. Gotti, glad you could join us. Thank you for having me. We had you, Duncan. <laughs> Jeremy, as, as usual. And, and folks, we'll see you next week. Actually, I know I'm going to be traveling again next week. I'll see you next yeah, week. Yeah, I'm yeah, reliable. Jeremy, Jeremy will be, be here. Good night. Good night. Take care.